Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Terry, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's always good. I feel like if we could do this every quarter, that would be perfect for me because I could just download some of what you've been thinking about and put it in my head and then carry that with me until it starts to decay and then have you back on again and fill me in again and fill the audience in. It's just, it's just so great. I was telling Kate, who's my co-host on the other show before, that it's always really good to chat to you about economics and about what's going on in the economy and asset classes. So stoked you're here again, mate. Thanks. I appreciate that. And that, that would work well for me too, because I, I really only want to work like four times a year. So yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. And the rest you can just read or even skateboard, which I know is a, a pursuit of yours. Speaking of, I know you skate to work every now and again, uh, but I'm going to ask you to switch hats to a motorized vehicle and ask you, what do you think will happen to the used car market this year? And in particular, would you be a buyer or a seller of used cars in Australia right now? It's an interesting one, I think. Uh, well, the first off, it's a weird thing to think about buying a, a depreciating asset. So with all the things you can do with your money right now and invest money and, and think about how to grow your wealth, would you stick you know, a large portion of your wealth into a, a depreciating asset? So that's the first thing. So maybe people buy used cars because they're more attractively priced. But Interesting when we come back to like what was the biggest issue around driving up inflation over the last couple of years, it was things like used car prices because there was no supply. You know, you couldn't get um, chips coming in to build new cars. Obviously, used cars went up. People didn't want to catch public transport. And more recently, you've seen those sort of dynamics reverse. So used cars prices have actually been falling more broadly. So I guess if you're thinking about buying one, would you just wait for prices to come down further, you know, into that sort of deflationary cycle, as it were, have that Japanese mindset, um, mm. prices always falling. Uh, and then if you're a seller, would you be like, well, I should sell my car now before it gets any cheaper? Personally, I think the technology in cars is improving so greatly. And you're seeing more and more cars come into Australia that are based on like electric vehicles, generally based on their own platforms instead of being converted from internal combustion engines that, you know, I think about buying cars are going to have that new sort of renewables or new battery operated ones rather than thinking about I probably wouldn't buy an internal combustion engine as my next car because I think they're going to get taxed or they're going to have some um, negative benefit for them and obviously the environmental aspect. So I think there's a big shift in the car industry going on in terms of if you're going to buy a car now, would you just wait a year or so and see the new cheaper electric vehicles come out that could be so much more beneficial? There we go, mate. So you're 
you've just come in and dropped the bomb on the car industry for us, which I think is amazing. <laughs> you didn't mention it was a used car, which is like, like was it an early early model Prius or like a 1960s Ferrari? I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. yeah, well, well, hopefully, uh, yeah, if, you, if we've got a Ferrari out here, I mean, sure. But that's really interesting because I tend to think that there's, I've often looked at the cars on the street and just think, who can afford to own this thing? So we just talked about this off air. Like, who can afford to own this car? Car dealers. Car dealers. <laughs> yeah, car dealers is what we've kind of come up with. So... I think that there's also the, the, like you said, the dynamic switching around, like I saw a chart the other day of the number of used cars being listed going up meaningfully. And then you said that the structural change of more people switching to EVs, which is another thing that's kind of like a structural trend that may work against people selling used cars. And so at the moment, it seems fantastic, or at least it was fantastic, but maybe that doesn't go on forever. Anyway, let's get to the kind of the meat in the sandwich, which is last time we had you on the show, we talked about like, we talked about the Fed. We talked about different markets around the world. We talked about equities markets like share markets here in Australia and globally. But now we're into 2023 and the stock market at least seems to have come raging back. At least it did at the beginning of the year. So I'm curious, what have been some of your key takeaways, say, since Christmas? And, and what are you thinking about at the moment? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the, the end of last year, you know, all the banks and ourselves and everyone else is publishing the year ahead outlooks. Uh, we're thinking about what's going to happen. And there was big themes there. Obviously, the significant tightening in monetary policy we'd seen around the world, that was expected to come to an end. You know, you're thinking about inflation pressures coming off. You're thinking about the impact that those large increases in monetary policy rates would have on the economy and create that drag. So very much thinking about a recession in the US. You're thinking about a recession in, in Europe because of the energy crisis. You're thinking about a slow reopening in China because of their zero COVID policies and the relatively cautious approach they've had. And then actually what transpired was a consumer that was remarkably resilient in the face of higher rates and was actually benefiting from inflation coming back down. Surprising economic data coming out from the US and elsewhere in the world. Europe, which has done uh, a remarkable job in managing uh, its energy needs and diversifying its energy sources. So that recession sort of faded away and you're thinking about a, a small expansion in the economy there. And then China just throwing open the doors to its economy, right? Just taking the blanket off COVID and saying, we're open and having this massive surge in um, consumption activity and growth coming from there. So that's changed the dynamic about, A, growth is looking better, so therefore inflation could be more resilient. And central banks, uh, for all their you know misgivings about communication, do appear to be leaning harder into fighting inflation in this environment uh, and really want to get that message across they're being hawkish. And so, as you mentioned, January wasn't a month of just go, go, go for markets as we had thoughts about this ending of policy rates and then suddenly February that reversed I mean, equity markets in Australia and the US are still up for this year. They're still up in Europe, uh, but it's been quite a significant reversal since the first part of February in terms of what markets have done. I think the challenge is still there around that uncertainty in the monetary policy and rate outlook, the infection that's having to the bond market in terms of the volatility, which is then knocking through to equities. So it's still a very uncertain time, which I think is not what everyone wanted. They wanted clarity about what was going to happen this year. And they were hoping that that would come through after such a you know horrible year last year for the returns on equities and bonds. Can you unpack that a bit? And because you, you, you talked to like uh, bond markets informing equity markets effectively there. The thing is like people were wondering if the rally in equity prices w- was sustainable. So can you talk through, I guess, the machinations there and how you think about whether or not things are sustainable and what you would maybe even in, in part of that, like what you would need, what the market would need to hear in order to think that. 
Yeah, I mean, we look at the returns on markets and equities and what drives them. So you can think about margin expansion or contraction. So that's the value of the stock or index going up. So price to earnings ratios. And you think about the earnings growth that's coming through, whether that's expanding year on year or that's contracting. Obviously, we have dividends on top of that. And then if we're thinking about currency movements, if we're translating it back into Aussie dollars. So in 2023, what we saw was a massive contraction in margins. So the value of price to earnings multiples fell from a very, very high level in January of 2022 down to something that was uh, average or below average by the end of the year. So entering into 2023, markets were much more attractively priced. You're looking at around about long-term averages for the uh, S&P 500, for the ASX. So as a buy signal, that's pretty good because what you pay for something now is going to largely affect your return over the next five years. You know, take your used car, you buy a used car at a very high multiple, and then it's going to fall over the next five years. So that was actually a very good thing for thinking about a re-rating in stocks to come through and why the markets would rise. And then countering that was obviously the earnings outlook. So we'd had Again, consensus earnings numbers that were quite slow to adjust to thinking about deterioration in the economic outlook. So we'd heard of the impact on margins from rising costs coming through, whether it's wages or import costs across last year. Uh, We still heard it across the first part of this year for Australian companies during the earnings season. But by and large, those changes hadn't been reflected in analyst expectations for earnings. So earnings growth expectations were still very high. And what you've seen more recently is those start to roll off as, you know, Coming into the year, analysts were still thinking about an S&P 500 earnings growth number that was kind of like mid to high single digits, and now it's like mid to low single digits. So there's been these things pushing in both directions, which I think have been meaningful in terms of what's led the market to rally, in terms of things being cheaper entering this year than they were entering last year, which has been great. And then the sort of big question mark around how much earnings growth really does have to fall. And some of that comes back to the fact that, you know, consumers have been more resilient, economies been more resilient. So maybe earning growth will be more resilient and the pressures on margins won't be so big. What matters from here on out and whether this is sustainable, yet again, things still aren't are super expensive when it comes to the equity market. Valuations are still quite attractive. We think about that long-term return potential, but when we look at it and say, well, if there is a more serious deterioration in the economy, if we are thinking about a recession in the US, those earnings growth numbers have to come down more and maybe the market or analyst expectations are a little bit too high at the moment and that would actually drag on the outlook for thinking about the performance of equities this year. So again, S&P is up 35 to 4%, ASX is up something similar, uh, it was up closer to six in February. Wouldn't take that much for those numbers to fall back down to where they started the year. That doesn't mean they're going to fall back down to where they were last year. But I think until you have that idea around an end of the policy rate hiking cycle uh, or thinking about the shape and the depth of the recession uh, and the equity markets, the income starts looking, what's the upside for that? What's the, the brightness on the other side? We think about the earnings growth numbers start to lift when multiples are actually quite supportive of earnings and the returns in the long term. I should mention that we're recording this on March 9th, 2023, uh, just to so people understand when this is said, because things change so rapidly. I was just looking at some data coming into the, the chat this morning, and it seems like, w- w- would, it be, would it be fair or unfair to say, to characterise like what the what we've seen in the US in terms of inflation, would it be fair to say that they're taming the beast of inflation or not? They are in some regards. So core goods inflation. So let's ignore energy and food prices because you know central bankers can't control those and they tend to not look at them. They're looking at the core parts of the economy, specifically core goods, core services, ex housing or shelter as they call it in the US, and then shelter costs. So when it comes to core good prices, 
those are the things that have meaningfully gone through disinflationary pressures. So they're still rising, but instead of rising by 11 or 12% a year on year, they're rising at like by two or less now. So that has definitely come out. And that's a function of the fact that supply has improved across many goods because we don't have these supply chain impediments anymore. And also because people aren't spending on goods, they're, they're rotating towards services. So that demand has also come back down. Where the pressures are still is around services x shelter. So that's largely back down to the, the shape of the uh, the strength of the labor market and wage growth. But again, that's starting to come down in the US. So wage growth is still falling year on year terms in the US. It's still over four, so high, but it's coming down. Uh, and then there's shelter costs. So the housing market, and that's quite slow moving. So they don't have the same impact on higher rates feeding through to people refinancing their mortgages because they have these 30-year fixed mortgages. They don't have to do it. So they have to wait for people to stop wanting to move house, to have to get new mortgages or thinking about the affordability of houses. And so it takes a little bit longer for that to come through. But if you look at the momentum we're seeing in the inflation like on month on month for the last sort of three or four months, that's definitely a downward trend. And we do think that inflation rates in the US are going to head back down towards 4% by the middle of the year, which is, is well down where they are now. Getting from sort of six to four is much easier than getting from four to two, though. So it's, it's not a question of getting inflation down. It's getting inflation down to that 2% target and how long that takes. But they definitely have, I think, and not just in the US, I think in other parts around the world, we've seen the peak in inflation. It's just how sticky it's going to be and how long it takes to get back down to those central bank's targets. That's probably good news for the people that maybe, I guess, catastrophize the situation a bit, um, or at least we're seriously worried about things like hyperinflation and those types of things that people tended to throw around a bit in 2022 when they didn't really have a, gra- a grasp on what was happening. So you came on, I think it was Self Wealth Live. We spoke about this last year or even here on the Australian Investors Podcast. Just your view on rates and inflation, maybe if we just stick to here in Australia, or you could say broadly if you want, where has that gone? I think from memory, what we've seen so far is broadly in line with what you were saying last year. So that's kudos to you, mate. Uh, <laughs> stop, stop clocks always right twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your updated view on those two things being rates and inflation? Well, in Australia, we've brought forward where we think rates will be increased. So we've thought there'd be uh, a longer drawn out rate hiking cycle in the US because, I'm sorry, in Australia, because, you know, in December of last year, the RBA and Governor Lowe very much did talk about or opened the door to thinking about pausing, Mm -hmm. very much aware that they'd hiked rates by 300 basis points within the space of about nine months uh, and then sort of said, well, you know, we know that's going to have a lagged effect on the housing market. We know that's going to have a lagged effect on the economy. We're concerned about over-tightening, so we we really want to wait and see if the economic data moves as we think it should. And then obviously we have the summer break. So, you know, you don't hear from the RBA for about six weeks. Uh, and, and then, you know, what we got was inflation numbers that were higher than what the, the RBA wanted them to be in the quarterly numbers. And we still had some positive momentum in other parts of the economy. And so, again, the RBA comes out and says, well, actually, we, we think it's right that we keep hiking rates in this environment. So we just brought forward those rate hikes. We didn't really change our terminal rate for thinking about where rates would go. So we still think they're going to do another two rate hikes. That would push the, oh, sorry, another one from here, sorry, because they've just done one. So that pushes the Aussie cash rate to 385 And at that point, we think that they will wait and see because we do expect the, the impact on the housing market to really show through from the second quarter because we'll get those refinancing of higher rates coming in and the slowing in consumption. We've burned through the savings rate in Australia already, so that's back down to pre-COVID averages. We're just thinking that there's there's less um, 
of a buffer for consumers. And now because of that, they're going to be much more sensitive to those rate hikes than they had been before. So it's like when you go to the dentist, right? They give you an injection in your gums so you can't feel the pain from the drill. And as that wears off, you can feel those vibrations and you're worried about that pain coming in. It's kind of like that. That buffer and aesthetic has started to wear off on the Australian economy. So again, we think inflation will come down here. We are seeing it early signs it is starting to roll over. Different diamond drivers of the dynamic here. The wage pressures aren't nearly as acute as they were in the US. And there's still some pressure around core goods though. We expect that to come down. And we think the unemployment rate will, will rise. We're going to get more workers coming in as, as people start to travel and move again. Uh, that migration picks up. Um, that will actually ease those pressures. So again, not thinking they're going to get back to 2% on their target this year, but we'll definitely think that they will end rate hikes and see the economy start to slow and be very worried about doing more that could actually push the economy back into recession, which is not our base case for Australia. Mm. So, I mean, there's so much in there, but one of the things that you touched on was the impact of rate rises on uh, mortgage holders, so people that own a property. This is like a very hot, topic and very contentious depending on who you listen to and the polarizing groups are on one side the people that maybe missed out on property and people that saw other people getting wealthy at least on paper from property and then on the other side you've got people that uh, potentially believe like housing is a supply side dynamic that's not solved and all these types of things so I'm very curious to get your take on this how you see the impact on particularly residential property playing out maybe 2023 if you want to take a longer bow you can however you think about it yeah so you look at house prices how they've moved since the peak so we think nationally they're down a little over nine percent in the last month that uh, pace of decline moderated a little bit so they didn't decline as much as they had in the prior months and in fact in sydney in the last month the prices actually went up a, a little bit so we're seeing that decline in prices start to moderate uh, we, our view is that it will continue if we look at the activity data with either building approvals or financing or that's coming through even auction clearance rates and auction sales volumes, they all point to a slowing in the market. And we would think that at the pace of decline that you've seen getting down to that 9% drop from the peak this time around has been much sharper than you've seen in prior down cycles in the Australian property market. Uh, and it's likely to, to fall further. So it could be 15, it could be 20%, but it's likely to keep going down. And historically, if you look back at, back at those past falls in the housing market, those past down cycles, the market doesn't start to turn up until the RBA starts to cut rates. And so we think we're some way from that. Uh, so we wouldn't think that there would be little to support the house prices in this environment. And if anything, I think what you're seeing in the building sector, what you're seeing in terms of um, activity on renovations or constructions all slowing down, that pipeline of things that were there is definitely going to come to an end. That suggests that you know there's not going to be a huge amount of supply coming through Rental yields are still moving up, but they're not as high as, as mortgage rates. So, And if we get to get an influx of, of new migrants, that's going to support uh, the rental market. So again, less supply of houses to buy for people to live in. So that would all suggest that you, know, you can think about in the short term, prices coming down. In the long term, they'll come back up as they always had, but you need lower rates uh, for that really to, to be a trigger to see that turn around, in my view at least. So the, like the rental market maybe has some sort of floor in the medium term. But the until we see rates, that's the true catalyst for price increases. Yeah, and I think in the meantime, I mean, the biggest problem with people trying to buy a house was not financing their mortgage; it was it was coming up with the deposit because you had yeah. like cash rates at zero. It was very hard to like build a deposit. At least now you can look at banks and think about how you build a deposit in this environment where money is higher, and so the cash rate is higher, and so when 
you know, prices do come down or, or mortgage rates come down, you know, the ability to finance that is a, a lot easier. So um, there's pluses and minuses to this. I mean, if it was financial oppression was the problem, you couldn't build a deposit. At least now you're in an environment where wage growth is higher, um, savings rates are higher in terms of, of cash rates, in terms of what you can get at the bank. You know, the ability to build a deposit is much better than it has been for some long time. Uh, I'm putting on a spot here, Carrie, but do you have any sense of like the duration of downturns in property markets in Australia? Yeah, it could be anywhere between, again, just thinking back to some of the charts we've created, uh, it could be anywhere between 18 and 24 months. So it could be a 24-month downturn. Just looking about the, the shape of that curve coming down, uh, generally they, they're a bit more shallow than they have been this time. This one's gone from like peak to nine pretty quick. They die now percent drawdown. But again, is it going to be a V that bounces back up? Unlikely, because it's unlikely that the RBA is going to turn around and cut rates very quickly. They're likely to hold rates at a higher level until they generally think about inflation coming down to something that's going to be less of a problem for the economy or moving in line with their target. And based on their last set of forecasts, that's not till 2024. So they're likely to have those higher rates. And so you're not going to see rate cuts come through meaningfully until maybe the end of this year or into next year. Uh, and that means that that downward slope is going to be a bit more protracted and more of a U-shaped recovery when it does come through. You know what I think of when you say that is like, I think, well, how much money can I save between now and whenever that happens? And maybe I'll be in a position to deploy capital in some way that's attractive at the time. Because that's what I think about it. When it particularly comes to residential property is, I mean, I'm not a property guy by, by trade, but I just think, well, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the problem with uh, buying houses, especially residential houses, in my own experience, is that uh, it's not always like a sound financial decision, like, oh, I'm doing this as an investment. It's more like emotive. It's like, oh, I mean, my family's getting bigger. I need a bigger house. I've got to move. So it's, it's, it can be some of those overriding factors that actually- Absolutely. It rather than, you know, that's the failing of economics. It's all based on the rational person, which is not true because everyone's irrational. Yeah, absolutely. Be reasonable was probably the key thing there. Okay. So a lot of Aussie investors listening to the show, they're buying their, their blue chips, their ETFs, whatever they're buying. They're thinking, well, what's Kerry's view on what could happen to the Australian share market in 2023? And rather than try and get you to pluck a, a star from the sky and say, this is where I think we're going. Maybe if you just kind of give us the narrative of a bull and a bear case, I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the when we did Think about like the, the price targets that some of our teams do have for different markets around the world. Our problem was that during January, because the rally was so strong, it hit a lot of those targets already in the first month of the year. <laughs> and so we were like, well, we didn't expect this to do this in the first month of the year. This was going to be a whole year kind of move. So we've seen the market pull back a little bit since then in terms of the Aussie equity market. So we still have some scope for growth to go back towards those targets. It's not a huge upside. I mean, we're thinking about 7,500 on the ASX um, 200 over the course of this year. So not massive from where we are today but still upside and that's, again, we're thinking about dividends on top of that to, to a certain extent. But it's been challenged in the near term. And I think when we think about what's the outlook for the Australian equity market, what's the case for a persistence in the rally, um, it does come back to that ending of rate hikes, the end of the rate hike cycle. So that's still a big question mark about what that may look like. Again, we think we're only sort of one or two rate hikes away from the end of that cycle, whether it's in the US or, or one more here in Australia over the coming months. And typically, equities do rally after that happens. After you get the end of the cycle, you can look back and say, the only time they didn't rally was the tech crisis in the US where markets continue to fall. But once the, the the policy rates stop hiking, immediately the market starts to think about when's the cut coming. And they're obviously thinking about the scope for the economy to start to improve on the back of that. So that would be something that would support the outlook for the, for the equity market returns. Uh, again, this Australian market, we're not thinking about a recession. We have 
growth slowing down into the third quarter of this year. It's going to be less than 2%, but then sort of moving back above uh, 2% into next year. Again, that's below trend. It's not great, but it's not a recession. It's not a very negative outcome that we think about in other parts of the world. So there is still that activity happening in the economy. And we look at other factors, the fact that you are seeing a reopening in China that's quite supportive. Um, income should rise nationally because of that. We have uh, a government which its own forecast for its fiscal position probably uh, are worse than what's actually going to transpire because of um, those incomes coming through from that national level. That opens the door for a bit more fiscal support should it come through. All those could be quite positive, thinking about a better outcome for the economy, thinking about a better outcome for markets on the base of that. That would be the positive case to see more upside to the market. On the downside, the risks that really are present, I mean, you have to throw in another pandemic because it could happen now, but hopefully it wouldn't. It's persistent inflation. So inflation just doesn't go away. And then central banks just have to keep hiking rates to control it. They either do actually kill the economy or that relative valuation between stocks and bonds just keeps moving in favor of fixed income and people just move away from from equities more and more. And that would be the thing that would really drive the outlook for equities down. Earnings growth would continue to fall in terms of expectations. You'd see that, that volatility in the bond market uh, just continue to impact the, the equity market outlook. And I think that would be the, the very negative case. Although, again, it's, it's, it's difficult to look at history and say, well, this is what's happened, so we expect it to happen again. But it's also very challenging and, and the wrong thing to say. This time it's different. But, you know, historically, you don't have two big drawdowns in the equity market in consecutive calendar years. I mean, we suffered heavily last year. And you wouldn't expect to have that same experience in, in 2023, given that we came into this year in a lot better position around the valuations and equities um, and a lot more of that news around the earnings being priced in already, even if we do think there's a little bit more to go on that. So those are the case for thinking about the, the downside to markets. I think globally, uh, there's probably better opportunities in emerging markets than just in Australia, even though Australia is a bit of a proxy for emerging markets. And I think the, the better outlook for Europe, given we're not thinking about a, a recession there, is also uh, something worth considering as, as investors think about more global opportunities than just the Australian market. So, okay, so I would say just, just to summarise there, and correct me if I'm wrong, your view in Australia seems to tilt more positive. Where it, you mentioned 7,500 for the ASX 200, 7,300 at the moment or thereabouts. So not, as you said, not huge upside, but, you know, it's, it's good. It's kind of reassuring, I'd say, for most people. And then EM or emerging markets and Europe, maybe as kind of look, look abroad, those are the areas that are quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, emerging markets have a lot of, and I think emerging Asia here, I mean, the, the China reopening story is very positive for thinking about spending throughout the region. So travel is going through the roof. You know, the number of flights that have been put on place since it reopened have been crazy into the places like Thailand. So you're definitely getting that. Inflation rates are generally coming down across Asia, central banks either have stopped the hiking rates already, uh, potential will cut this year. So again, more supportive of the outlook. Um, the US dollar, which has been a big headwind last year, is likely to be flat to down this year. So that's a tailwind. So there's a lot of things that are moving in favor of emerging markets at the moment. And generally, it's something that's been under-owned by investors for a long time. Again, they may feel like they get that proxy exposure to emerging markets from being invested in Australia, which is true to a degree, but you're not getting the real exposure, the real growth story from it. And then in Europe, obviously, you're getting a more of a, a cyclical bounce coming through. So you can think about some of the more cyclical sectors there and the performance. And again, some of it's linked back to China. Think about all those uh, luxury brands that are produced in places like Germany and stuff that have been performing really well uh, because of that reopening effect in China. That's uh, it's, yeah, quite interesting. And when you think about where we were this time last year with a view on emerging markets, right? How, and this is the, the volatility spectrum, if you like, the, the stronger US dollar and the pain everyone thought that that would inflict on 
developing or emerging markets, that was, everyone was like, we're not touching that right now. And with the view now, just 12 months later, it seems much more, I guess, palatable to be an allocator in, into those parts of the world. Yeah, when you look around, you're looking for relative value opportunities. It just tends to point you that way, and you can see all the the, the troubles happening uh, in places like the US, which has been like the US has been this case of just exceptionalism for a very long time. So everyone's just had US stocks. I mean, it's been the technology sector, it's been some of those growth areas they've just performed so well. Now it's a case of thinking, well, I still want to have the quality bias that comes with owning a US company and the resilience in earnings and the higher return on it, equity. But again, I'm I'm conscious of like. You know, the Fed may push rates to six percent. It's like not an outside chance. I mean, bond yields could shoot up. That's going to you know really harm those growth and technology sectors that are sensitive to to bond yields. And so that's a big weight in the market. That could be quite negative. Uh, and that's why I think people are now looking around the world, uh, especially U.S. investors, for opportunities elsewhere. Mm, yeah, we talked off air a minute ago how you're having a lot of those conversations at, at JP. So, and JP Morgan Asset Management is sponsor of the show, which is fantastic. Wonderful to have such a wonderful name as part of the show and the ability to chat to Kerry every now and again. So, mate, I think that uh, that just about wraps us up for today. And I think that was a super concise summary of like what you've been thinking about so far in 2023, also in late 2022, and how that's kind of put, the, the, I guess, the, the thread through the, the needle there uh, for us. And I, I, I got to admit that I've come away feeling a little bit more optimistic about particularly some of the asset classes that I'm very interested in. And just hearing and speaking to people around town, I think my general view of 2023 is more optimistic, slightly more optimistic than 2022. So that's that's great. If people want to find out more about you and what you're thinking about, they can head to the JP Morgan Asset Management website, if I'm not mistaken. There'll be a link in the show notes. Kerry does do some fantastic updates, both he and the team, that you can get for free. Um, if you want to like latch onto some of his insights, please go and check it out because they are, you shouldn't miss them. If you're looking for a, a macroeconomic take in Australia and abroad, um, yeah, I, don't, I can't think of anyone better. So, mate, I really appreciate you taking some time to join me on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate those kind words. And yeah, I mean, just to summarize, there is a lot of risk out there. Just, I, yeah, I, yeah, I maybe naturally a bit of an optimist. <laughs> There's still a lot of risks out there in terms of what could happen. So I think it's worth just being a little bit cautious with how I think about positioning at the moment mm. in terms of don't jump into the equity market or maybe look for things and where they're going to turn. But I think for most people who, you know, medium to longer term investors, they're not traders, you know, there's lots of opportunities for thinking about those better returns over the long run right now. Uh, as you mentioned, I mean, my whole job is just to provide insights and hopefully allow people to make better investment decisions. It's on our website, everything's for free, but please do, yeah, if you have the chance to take a look at it. Yeah, I'd say that's the place to go because um, it can sometimes be a long time between drinks with us. So, so go and check it out. I, I have this opinion, Kerry, that you don't need, this is my, it's quite controversial. You don't need a lot of macroeconomic inputs to be a good long-term investor. You just need the right inputs. And so but what that I mean is you just need to listen to the right people who are re well-researched at the right times rather than trying to consume every headline that the, the mainstream media pushes out because I think that's far more detrimental to long-term returns than listening to the right people uh, when they have something to say. So put you in that bucket, mate. To pump <laughs> I your appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. So go and check that out. And once again, mate, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tom. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. 
After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.